Take your Bible and uh, open to uh, Romans chapter 12 is where we're at this evening in our study. Romans chapter 12, we are in verses uh, 14, 15, and 16 tonight. And I think you will be challenged and encouraged and blessed by our time tonight in God's Word. It's just a tremendous portion of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. It says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. We are uh, continuing on here in our study in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, looking at the topic of how we should live, right? how we should live together, how we should live in light of the mercies of God to us in Christ. Uh, the opening verse of the chapter really sets the stage or sets the tone for the discussion. Uh, look back up there, chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your, your spiritual service of worship. So we have learned in our study that the mercies of God really are all the wonderful things that Paul has talked about and taught us in, in the first 11 chapters of the book. Uh, we learned about God's wrath and his mercy. We learned about the, the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, we've learned about the guilt of all mankind and the fact that there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, we've also seen that the righteous judge of the universe has brought about salvation uh, to those who believe by faith alone, uh, through grace alone and Christ alone as a gift of his kindness. We've learned about Christ's death, his resurrection, his intercession, how we're counted righteous and entered into the realm of peace by, uh, because of his obedience. Uh, we've seen that we are freed from sin and death and now have been completely transformed and become slaves of righteousness, able to present uh, ourselves as instruments of righteousness resulting in our sanctification. We've also seen that the love of God has been poured out within our heart, that we are completely free from any kind of condemnation because of Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen. Just a tremendous portion of Scripture. We've seen now that we're indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit who's been, uh, who, who raised Christ from the dead, who now gives life to our uh, mortal bodies, and therefore we're no longer to live in the flesh, but under the direction of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. We are, therefore, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We're being led by Him. We're showing forth the fact that we are sons of the living God, again, by being led by the person of uh, the Holy Spirit. In all of that, uh, we've seen, and not only just that, but we've seen that God, the sovereign of the universe, is the one who's working out all things for his glory and for our good, right? And he is the one who's promised to never allow anything to separate us from his love through the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we're to consider how, how, how we are to live, Right? In light of the fact that we deserve nothing but eternal condemnation, but instead we've received nothing but God's great gift of mercy, grace, and love, we've got to think about how we live. In light of the fact that we deserve nothing but eternal misery, but in Christ we're given eternal blessings, uh, eternal joy, how do we live our lives? And the way we live our lives is in direct proportion to how much we understand how kind and good and merciful God has been to us through Christ. And then we have seen that in light of God's great mercies towards us in Christ, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities towards God, and we have responsibilities towards each other in the fellowship. As to God, we have a responsibility to give ourselves to Him in total, wholeheartedly, and unreserved service. That would be both logical and reasonable, Paul asserts. Again, <clears throat> back at the top of the chapter, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, logikos is the word, your spiritual, your logical, your reasonable service of worship. Right? So we have a responsibility because of what God has done towards us. We have a responsibility back to Him, which is logical and reasonable. And we have a responsibility as a spiritual service of worship back to him not to allow ourselves to be pressed into, conformed, controlled by uh, this evil world <clears throat> system in which we live. But rather we have a responsibility to have our minds completely controlled and transformed <clears throat> Excuse me, by God's word. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So again, because of God's mercies to us in Christ, 
We have responsibilities to God and we have responsibilities towards each other. And as we worked our way through the text, I told you there's four of them uh, that we've uh, talked about. Uh, First one, we must walk together in humility, right? These are our responsibilities because of God's kindness towards us, responsibilities towards God, responsibilities towards each other. The first one, walk together in humility, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to to each a measure of faith. Now, we're all together. We've talked about this. We're all together in this room. We're all together in the body of Christ for one reason and one reason only. We're all sinners. (laughs) That's that's what unites us. We're all sinners, all great sinners, and all in desperate need of a great Savior. Right? All sinners saved by grace alone. Therefore, there's no room whatsoever in the body of Christ, the church, for pride. Because there's absolutely nothing special about any one of us. About any one of us, there's nothing special. We're all nothing more than trophies of God's grace and His mercy. Nothing to boast about in ourselves whatsoever. The only thing for us to boast, is, boast in is, is in God and Christ. God's grace to us through Christ. So again, the command of the Scripture is to walk together in humility. Secondly, the next responsibility we have is to realize that we've been saved to a life of interdependence. We can't deal with this one as Westerners, especially here in the United States, but we need to think biblically. We've been called, saved, a responsibility, therefore, to live a life of interdependence, not independence, interdependence. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body... And all the members have, do not have the same function, so we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Right? There are no Lone Ranger Christians biblically. No one who's obedient to the Word of God will try to live like that. The reality is we need each other. We belong to each other. We're designed by God to live a life vitally connected to other brothers and sisters in Christ, caring for each other, edifying each other, building each other up in love. The third uh, responsibility we have towards each other in view of God's great mercy towards us in Christ is we have a responsibility to exercise the God-given gifts that we possess. To exercise the gifts that God has given to us, verse 6. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We all have gifts that belong, uh, that are from God to us for the building up of the body. And as I said, when we went through this section, we have a right to your gift. You don't get your gift alone. We have a right to your gift. The gift that God has given to you is for the building up of the body of Christ, not for your, just your personal edification, but it's for you to share with others. So again, we have a right to your gift. And you have a responsibility to others, to the rest of the body of Christ, to enter into active, faithful, obedient service in the body. Using your gift, again, for the benefit of the body. The truth is there should be no one who is in... Uh, 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 who, who is not serving. There should be no one who's not serving somewhere in this fellowship. This is not a, 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 a spectator sport. There should be no one who's not serving actively somewhere. I know it's a double negative, which means everybody should be serving. Everybody. I don't know what your gift is. You don't need to take a test to find out what your gift is. Just get involved and start serving. Either have a serving gift or a speaking gift. That's it. Right? So you should be serving somewhere, somebody, somebody's in this body. There are all kinds of people in the room that need help, that need encouragement. There's all kinds of opportunities. There should be nobody uh, not helping, nobody not using that gift that God has given to you for the benefit of the body. The fourth or number four uh, responsibility we have in the view of the mercies of God is to genuinely, sincerely love. To genuinely and sincerely love. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. So the Christian is to love unselfishly. In self-giving, self-sacrificing devotion to each other, uh, to each and every member of the body of Christ. So the Christian is to practically and tangibly love his brother and sister in Christ. 
paying whatever personal price is necessary so that the needs of the other person might be met. Now, obviously, that kind of love is foreign to the world. But that kind of love that is foreign to the world that is practiced by us gives us an opportunity to draw men's attention to Christ. As along with hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Right? We're to have no part of evil. We're to cling to what is good and we're to serve each other and love each other. Now, as we saw last time, which is a couple of weeks ago, I understand that. But as we worked our way through the text, this works itself out in a, in a number of ways. There's about 10 different areas. I never numbered them, so I'll just give you a number. There's a number of ways. This kind of love that we're talking about here, verse 10, is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The kind of love that God is calling to us to, to through Christ because of the mercies of God in our own life loves like we're part of a family. It's the same kind of love that uh, an, an intimate affection that members of a family show to each other because the reality is we're all now members of one family, God's family. So we have to treat each other with special kindness. The kind of love that God is calling us to, to work out itself, uh, to work out is a love that gives preference to one another in honor. Now, this is the kind of love that gets in front of the line, so to speak, to show and demonstrate concern for others in the body of Christ. It's not your issue, not what you want. No, it's somebody else. How can I get in line to help somebody else? Not get what I want, but to help serve somebody else. This kind of love, verse 11, does not lag behind in diligence or zeal, but rather is fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's the kind of love that works with enthusiasm under the Lord. It's the kind of love that's set on fire by the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It's a love that is committed as a slave of God unto Christ, unto the Lord. This kind of love, verse 12, uh, rejoices in hope, perseveres in tribulation, and is devoted to prayer. So it's, again, it's the kind of love that's anchored in the promises of God and awaits God's intervention in our times of trouble. Because we realize that everything that comes into our life comes into our life first through the hands of a good God, a loving God, a God that has loved us and proven that love by giving us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That there's no chance or accident or bad luck. Everything is under the divine sovereign purposes of God in this world. We talked about that this morning. God controls every minute detail of the events of our life. So everything that happens comes into our life first through the hands of a good God who's loved us. Therefore, the kind of love that Paul is calling us to here spends time in communion with that God, in prayer. Again, he says there, verse 12, that kind of love is devoted to prayer. It's the kind of love that considers how it spends, how it spends its time, how it spends its money, how it spends that which God has entrusted as a steward uh, of uh, his resources. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your finances? It's the kind of love, verse 13, that God is calling us to because of his mercies in our life. Verse 13, that contributes to the needs of the saints, that practices hospitality. So whatever the needs of others are, this kind of love makes that those needs their own in common ownership. It's the kind of love that enjoys being kind to strangers, and not only that, it's the kind of love that pursues strangers, the love of strangers, looking for ways to pursue opportunities to practice hospitality. Now, that's kind of just a very quick, I think, necessary summary of where we've been so far in, in the beginning of the chapter, the first 13 verses. And I think we have to keep those things in our mind as we continue to move our way forward into the text and continually remind ourselves, again, as we think of how to live life under the sun, as it were, how to live life in view of the great mercies of, uh, of to us uh, in Christ, we have to stop and go, we have responsibilities, therefore, to God, and I have responsibilities towards each other in the body of Christ. But we also have responsibilities to those who are not in the body of Christ. And that's part of what we're going to consider tonight as we open the text. Now, it's been a few weeks back, <clears throat> I know, but I hope you remember a few weeks back I suggested that you could take uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 and kind of draw it into three circles, kind of three ever-expanding circles of influence, categories of people, and, and duties that we have towards each other. 
9 through 13 that we just finished. Those are the duties that we have towards, <coughs> excuse me, each other in the body of Christ. And now the second circle that comes out, and we're going to look at tonight, verses 14 through 16. These are the responsibilities we have towards those that are uh, not only Christians, but those who are not Christians. That's how I see um, 14 through 16. Uh, some aspects of the text, 14 through 16, uh, they're true of Christians. Um, and they could apply to Christians, but some of the aspects of the verses that we're going to look at could apply to those who are most definitely not Christians. So how do we treat them? Right? Responsibilities of God, responsibilities in the body of Christ. How do we treat those uh, uh, who are uh, uh, perhaps not Christians? Again, that's what the next verses are about. So verse 14, Paul just kind of dives in there and says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. That's a tough one. I mean, honestly, it's, it's hard enough to love the rascals in the fellowship that you know are saved. And sometimes it's just hard to get along with them. But the command here is to bless those who persecute them. And the command is not just to get along with them, not just to do them no harm or not to retaliate against them, but the command is to take an additional step Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, again, that's the kind of command that can't be carried out by someone who's not saved. Can't be carried out by the unregenerate man. Only the regenerate can carry out the command. Only the regenerate can obey the command. And by obeying the command, it's one of the ways to prove that you indeed understand the doctrine that has been placed before you by Paul in the first 11 chapters of the book. You see, it's altogether one thing to say, I love the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. It's filled with wonderful truths. I've been encouraged and challenged, and it's warmed my heart. But it's altogether another thing to live in a manner that is a direct result of really having understood the truth that Paul presented in the first 11 chapters. Because that truth is meant to transform and change us. So if we verbally ascend to the truths in the first 11 chapters of the book, but live our lives contrary to what it has taught and not in light of the, ver- the, the mercies of God in our life, then we're really denying the power of the gospel. And we're ni- denying the power of, of the gospel to transform and change our lives. We're denying what we say we believe in. Now, I don't know, maybe somebody thinks that's a strong statement, but it's true. If, if we live in a manner that is opposed to the teaching of the first 11 chapters, then we're really denying the very truth we say we believe. We're denying the transforming <clears throat> power of the gospel of grace. And if we're living our lives contrary to the revealed doctrinal truths in the first 11 chapters of the book, uh, if we're living contrary to that, then we're really denying God and his glory, denying his salvation. To talk the talk and fail to walk in a manner that shows that the word of God has impacted our life is really an affront to God. And the bottom line is, if we're living like everybody else around us in the world, if we're reacting to every situation around us, like the world is reacting to whatever happens, then wouldn't you suggest that that would infer that we are of the world? Right? If we're living like the world, acting like the world, looking like the world, reacting to the, way, the situations in the world the way the world does, and that would suggest that we're of the world. People don't judge us by what we say we believe. People judge us by what they observe in our lives. People are watching us all the time. Whether or not our profession of faith really indeed has truly changed or transformed our lives. Does Christ have the power to change your life? Oh yeah, without question. Question is, has Christ transformed and changed your life? Is there something distinctively different from you or about you than from uh, uh, your neighbor who's not a believer in the way you live your life? I mean, stop and think about it. How How did the church grow from its inception? Answer, By common everyday people living transformed lives amongst the unconverted. And the unconverted being impacted and won to Christ first by the word of of God proclaimed, but then by the conduct of the believer who had opportunity to then speak to that person about Christ. It's truth and life together. And just in case you think I make that up, I don't make anything up usually. But just in case I don't have a Bible verse to back that up, I can give you one. Just think about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. He he doesn't say go be. He says you are. You're the light of the world. City set on the hill cannot be hidden. 
Therefore, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's the reality of who we are in Christ, light of the world, a city set on a hill. So therefore, we're to live our lives radically in a manner so different from the world around us that men and women whom we interact with on a daily basis who don't know Christ would say, why are you so different? What in the world is wrong with you? Why don't you go drinking with us? Why don't you go partying with us? Why, don't you, why, why do you walk away when there's some kind of uh, uh, foul language or bad joke or whatever? Why are you different? Again, if you look like the world, act like the world, laugh at the world's jokes, then you're probably of the world. Right? If there's something radically different about your life, it gives you an opportunity to give testimony to the rea- reality of the fact that there is something different about you, and this is why. So again, I think the very best form of evangelism is just every individual Christian faithfully and obediently living their life in Christ before an unbelieving world that's always watching. The world's always watching. Somebody's watching you, I guarantee you. You say, well, no, no, no. No, somebody's watching you at work, I guarantee you. Somebody's watching you at the gas station that you get gas at or the grocery store that you get groceries at every single week. I'm telling you, somebody's watching you. And the reality of the truth is the gospel changes and transforms people's lives. And those who have been impacted by the gospel, they've been changed. And now that they have been changed, not just saved, but changed, they are becoming more and more like whom? Right? We're becoming more and more like Christ, right, in our daily walk, in our, in our daily lives, looking more and more like the Savior. Again, those who just merely give verbal assent to doctrinal truths without any kind of transformation of life, transformation of character, are really denying the doctrine they say they believe in and really ultimately denying the doctrine of regeneration. Nicodemus, I'm a very religious guy. I'm into the truth stuff. Jesus says you need to be what? Born again. I'm glad you got PhDs and and, and THDs and whatever else on your wall. I'm very thankful, uh, Nicodemus, that you're the leader of the Sanhedrin. You are the teacher of the truth. But your heart's not been transformed or changed. Knowing stuff is different than living in reality uh, or living uh, in a reaction to the truth that we say we know. The doctrine of regeneration is not just some ethereal doctrine. It actually says that we're new creations in Christ. We're no longer who we used to be. Old things pass away, new things have come. And new things means new things everywhere across the board. Because the person who is saved, the person who has come to have new life, again, that's what Nicodemus needed, the person who has new life has come to understand not only does Jesus save his people from their sins, but Jesus actually transforms them. And makes them look more and more like him. And being united with the person of Jesus Christ changes the way a person practically lives their life in a wicked and perverse world. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on the hill. Can't hide. Now, that's basically what Paul's been saying all along here, right? In view of God's mercies towards us in Christ, because God, listen, because God has interfered and interrupted your life through Christ, right? That's what happened. You were doing your own thing, separate from God, separate from Christ. At some point, God interfered in your life. God interrupted your life through Christ. He has saved you, and now he's joined you with his son. He's not only saved you and joined you with his son, but he's now adopted you into his family. Therefore, you have certain responsibilities as part of the family. You have certain responsibilities and duties as those who've been born again, born from above to God, to others in the fellowship, and to others around you in the world. Again, responsibilities to God, responsibilities to the body of Christ, and now responsibilities towards those who may indeed be in the visible church or uh, responsibilities to those who are obviously not a part of the redeemed, the body of Christ. And the overarching responsibility that you and I both have, the overarching responsibility we have, listen, is to be like our God. That's it. The overarching responsibility we have is to be like our God. We're to be the visible manifestation of his presence in the world because we are the visible manifestation of his presence. You are the light of the world. So how do we represent him then? How are we to represent God in the world? What is God like? Well, uh, the characteristic that probably best describes him, you already know the answer to that already, is God is what? Love, right? God is love, right? First John 4 and 8. Now, I think that command, uh, uh, or the, the command really that is over the entire section here from verse 9 through 21 is found in the statement, 
back up in verse 9 where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be real. Let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. To those in the body of Christ, that's true. I know it's kind of difficult at times with some folks, but we're still working hard on that one. But now he says, look, let love be without hypocrisy. Right? Let love be real, genuine, sincere, even to those who are outside the body of Christ. Because that's exactly what he says. He says, bless those who what? Persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now the word persecute means to make, to run, to put to flight, drive away, harass, trouble, molest, mistreat, cause suffering, etc. and so forth. You get the idea. And persecution can come obviously in many forms, many fashions, many ways. Uh, sometimes it's open. Uh, sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's blatantly brutal. Uh, putting people into prison, beating them, sometimes even killing them. But sometimes, a lot of times, especially here uh, in our country, at the moment, it's more subtle. Uh, it's being discriminated against at work. It's being passed over for a promotion at work because people know you, or people believe that you are quote unquote religious, whatever that is. They have no idea what that means, but you're religious. You're that religious fellow. Perhaps being sneered, mocked at, ridiculed, talked about poorly. Whatever way the persecution comes, Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Again, Paul says, you, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, then be like your God. Because those who are like their God are going to love as he loves, and that's without hypocrisy, genuinely and sincerely. Those who are like their God will bless those who persecute them, bless and curse not. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of the time we have together just pounding that one point. And I'm going to show you that it's a rational and reasonable statement that Paul is making here. This command for us all to bless those who persecute us, bless and curse not. And I'm going to do it by asking four questions and working our way through these four questions. So here they are, and I'll give them to you again so you don't have to freak out. I can't write them down fast enough. Number one, where does persecution come? From where does persecution come? Number two, why does it come? Number three, how will we react to persecution? And number four, what are we going to do about it? Right? Where does it, where, from where does persecution come? Why does it come? How will we react to persecution? And what, we will do, what will we do about it? So number one, where does persecution, where does, uh, persecution come from? Right? From where does persecution come? Probably a better way to say it. And again, I, I know you know the answer to this. Immediately in your mind you say it comes from where? The world. Right? Persecution comes from the world. That's true. Now John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have uh, peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Matthew five eleven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Matthew ten twenty three. Whatever they, uh, w- whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. John fifteen verse twenty. Remember the world, the word that I said to you: a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word; they'll keep yours. Second uh, Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? Persecution comes from the world. Now, we must not overlook the admonition, the, the warning from the Apostle Paul, nor from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because sometimes uh, persecution not only comes from the world, but persecution sometimes comes what is fr- from what might be considered, quote-unquote, the church, the visible church, or at least the religious establishment. I'll say it like that. So put a mark there so you don't lose your, your place, and, and then just turn over uh, to uh, 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 back to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, Paul has left uh, Ephesus. He's not going to return. Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when he'd come to him, he said to them, and he's going to say to them a number of things, but I want to drop down to verse uh, 28. This is what he said. Acts 20, verse 28. It says, Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
verse uh, 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from here it is, among your own selves, a men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Sometimes within the church, the visible assembly of the believers, uh, sometimes within the church there are false teachers. And they rise up and they speak falsehood and they try to devour the sheep like ravenous wolves. And Paul says, look, you've got to be on the, outlook, uh, the lookout for them. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Uh, these kind of attacks from within are devastating. Even more so than attacks from the outside, because these attacks are led by defectors from within who, who twist and pervert the truth. Christ said that very same kind of thing in Matthew 10, verse 16, about the Jews. Uh, in, in the context of our discussion, he's warning about persecution coming from within the visible religious establishment. But he says in Matthew 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts. Here it is, and scourge you in their synagogues. And even brought you before governors and kings for my sake, the testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He says, look, there's going to be persecution in the world because of, uh, and it's going to come from the Gentiles, but there's going to be persecution also uh, from the Jews, the religious establishment. There's going to be persecution from those who claim no allegiance to God, and there's going to come persecution from those who do make a verbal proclamation of their allegiance to God. Christ said the same kind of thing over in, in John chapter 16, verse 2. He says, they'll make you outcasts from the synagogues, and hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. So he's going to say, look, there are those within the visible religious establishment that won't understand the truth, and they're going to bring persecution upon the true believer, wrongly believing that they're doing some kind of act of service to God himself. So men are going to come from within, men are going to come without, from without, and they're going to persecute the true believer. Because, in, again, Second Timothy 3, uh, uh, 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. So faithful believers have to expect, must expect persecution and suffering to come at the hands of those who ultimately reject Christ. So on one hand, it really doesn't matter where the persecution comes from. We just need to realize that it's going to come. And we have to be aware of the fact that sometimes it comes from within and sometimes it comes from without. Second question, why does persecution come? Well, look over to John. Can we turn it back? John chapter 15. John 15, verse 18. John 15, 18, Christ speaking, says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. In this uh, passage of Scripture, uh, Christ gives five reasons why persecution comes to the believer. Again, verse 18, the first one, it's because of our identification with Christ. Persecution comes to us as believers because of our identification with Christ. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So again, the world, we've talked about this a lot, the world's anti-God, anti-Christ system that is dominated and controlled by the prince of the power of the air, seeing himself, uh, again, we've talked about that a number of times, and if the evil one, who's in constant active rebellion against the person of God himself, and against in active rebellion against Christ, if he's the one who governs this world system, then we should not be surprised that this system that he rules over hates us, who are identified with Christ. Satan hates God, Satan hates Christ, Satan, Satan hates us, right? Satan hates you. And he hates you because of your association with the Savior. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Second reason, we don't belong to the world. 
Our identification with Christ, that's why we are hated. That's why persecution comes. Second reason, we don't belong to the world. Verse 19 again, if you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We're not of this world. Therefore the natural man, the man who's dead in trespasses and sin, who hates God, who hates Christ, hates us because we're not like him. We, we don't go drinking, partying, carousing. We don't laugh at the jokes. Anyone who does not conform to this pattern of this world is going to be ridiculed, they're going to be scorned, and they're going to find trouble. But again, a true Christian is completely different than the world around them because a true Christian is a new creation. Therefore, they're hated by the world. If you're of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, the world hates you. Third, persecution comes to the believer because God has chosen the believer out of the world. God has chosen him out of the world. Again, verse 19, if you're of the world, the world would love its own, but you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Perhaps there's no doctrine that is more hated than the doctrine of sovereign and divine distinguishing grace or the the doctrine of divine election. It's hated by the world and is not understood by many who claim Christ as Savior. And it's a doctrine played out that attracts anger and hatred. It's interesting. You do this on your own. Uh, Luke 4, 24 through 29. Go back there and read when Jesus first taught the doctrine of distinguishing grace and see how people treated him. I'll give you a little insight. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. That's how, that's how much the doctrine is hated. They wanted to murder him. Fourth reason why persecution comes to the believer is, again, because it came to Christ. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Right? A slave is not above the master. That's how the world treated Christ. That's how the world's going to treat us. And lastly, why does persecution come to the believer? Because the world doesn't know God. The world does not know God. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know the one who sent me. In the world, they have no saving knowledge of God. Therefore, they hate him. They refuse to bow their knee. They refuse to confess their sin and repent and to come to him to seek forgiveness for their sin. Therefore, they hate him, and they hate all those who are associated with him. So why does persecution come to the believer? Because of our identification with Christ, because we don't belong to the world, because God has chosen us out of the world, because it came to Christ, and because the world doesn't know or love God. Five reasons why persecution comes to the believer. Third question in my list. How are we going to react to it? How are we going to react to it? Now back to the Romans passage, because I want you to see that. Romans 12. How do we react to persecution? Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Paul's saying that persecution, when it comes has to be reacted to out of the fruit of being overwhelmed by the truth. It has to, it has to, the reaction has to be out of the fruit of being overwhelmed by the truth. Out of the fruit of being overwhelmed by the mercies of God in our own lives, in your own life. Realizing that every one of us in the room deserves nothing but eternal misery. Therefore, persecution must be reacted to in a manner that is consistent with a person who has been transformed and renewed in his mind by God's grace. That's the standard. So persecution has to be reacted to. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, inside, outside. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, but persecution has to be reacted to in a manner that is consistent with someone who has experienced genuine saving faith. And I think verse 3 here in chapter 12 kind of helps the discussion, it weighs in on the discussion. Romans 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So a man who lives in the realm of grace, who himself is the object of God's mercy in his life, doesn't think very highly of himself. He doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought to think. He realizes that he's a man saved by grace. A man who's saved by grace realizes that he doesn't deserve anything good. 
A man who's saved by grace realizes he doesn't deserve anything good. He doesn't expect to receive anything good from the world. Realizing what he actually deserves would be if he were to get what he has earned, not grace, but it would be what? Eternal punishment. Eternal misery. Therefore, the Christian doesn't live with his eyes focused on himself. He doesn't live with his eyes focused on his circumstances, but he lives with his eyes focused on his Lord and Savior, the person of Jesus Christ. So a man that's experienced God's saving grace is not preoccupied with himself and what happens to him. Rather, a man who is saved by grace is preoccupied and consumed by the person of Jesus Christ. And a man who is living in view of the mercies of God in his own life realizes he is there in the realm of grace, not because he was smart enough to figure the whole thing out, but he is there experiencing God's grace and God's mercy in his life only because of God's kindness. Only because God was kind enough, only because God was strong enough, only because God was merciful enough, only because God was loving enough to overcome all of our resistance to him. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace we've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Because God in his mercy has exercised his great grace towards us before the foundation of the world, and Christ has secured our salvation through his shed blood on Calvary's cross, and the person of the Holy Spirit has opened our blind eyes to the glory of the truth revealed in the scriptures concerning the person of Christ. Again, now we're new creations. And in a new condition to be obedient to God's command to bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. So again, where does persecution come from? Sometimes it comes from the world. Sometimes it comes from those who uh, identify with the religious establishment. Why does it come? It comes because of our identification with Christ, because we don't belong to this world, because God has chosen us out of the world, uh, because it, uh, uh, we, we've come to Christ and the, and the world doesn't know God, doesn't love God. How do we react to persecution? Well, we, we react to it in a manner that's consistent with who we are, the fact that we are now objects of God's great mercy. It, it, it reacts in a, in a manner that is consistent with the fact that we're recipients of God's great grace in our own lives, consistent with the fact that we're only here in this realm of grace because of God's kindness and mercy to us through Christ. Only because of God do we have the great privilege of knowing him and loving him and being loved by him. Last question, what do we do about persecution? Or maybe more specifically, what do we do when persecution comes? So again, Paul gives the answer. We bless. We bless and curse not. Now, the word bless there means to praise, uh, celebrate, uh, invoke blessings, ask God's blessing and favor upon, cause to prosper, make happy, bestow blessings upon. To bless someone means we speak well of them. We treat them as if they're a friend and we pray for them. Paul says if our hearts are where they should be in view of God's great mercies in our own life, a proper response by us when we're persecuted is to do that person who is persecuting us the highest good that we know how to do for them. And the highest good that we can do for anyone who is persecuting us or the highest good that we can do for anyone in our life is to take them to the throne of grace. The highest good that we can do for anyone is to earnestly pray for them. Not to curse them, because that's what the world does. That's the way of the flesh, to curse. But as Christians, we're to bless them. And it's a present active imperative, uh, which means it's the mood of command. Listen, it's not the mood of suggestion. It's the mood of command. Presently, actively, by the command of God, we who know Christ, we who know Christ as Lord and Savior, the command is bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Again, it's the command of Paul, it's the command of the Scripture, it's the command of the Savior. Uh, Christ said the very same thing or very something very similar back in the book of Matthew. Turn back there very quickly and hold your spot because we're coming back quickly. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard it's, that it was said, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who... 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, verse 44. But I say to you, Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is imperfect. Now again, the natural response to those who are hurting us, the natural response to that is to respond negatively to them, to harm them. Or in the words of Paul, curse them, right? That's the natural response. But we're called to live supernatural transformed lives in Christ. We're to be perfect, Christ says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, tax gatherers, sinners, Gentiles, they love those who love them. There's nothing special or unusual about that. But the Christian is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Christ says. He says, look, it's not enough just to turn the other cheek and not retaliate. Christ says you've got to go the extra step. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. So again, the Christian lives not like the world, but like the God who has loved him. Uh, The Christian lives not like the world, but like the God who's loved him. The Christian is not to hate those who hate him, but the Christian is to be like his Savior. The Christian is to seek to do good those who are persecuting So the Christian is to bless. Bless and curse not. Again, the Christian is to work actively for the good of those who hate and persecute them. Now, what do we do specifically uh, when when persecution comes? We're We're to bless and not curse. We're to actively seek the good of the person who's persecuting us. But what specifically do we do to help us when persecution comes towards us? What do we do in our own heart, our own mind? Well, remember... Remember. I'm going to give you four things. Remember. Stop and remember how God treated you. Stop and remember the fact that you were once just like the world apart from Christ. Titus 3 and 3. We were also on ourselves foolishness, a disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, envy hateful, hating one another. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived. The lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Romans 8.7, our minds were set on the flesh, Therefore, they were hostile towards God and unable to subject themselves to the law of God. Romans 5.10, before God in his kindness worked in our life, before he interfered in our life, we were enemies. Romans 5.10, enemies of God. That's who we were apart from Christ. Rebels, aliens, haters of God, his enemies. So how did God treat us when we were his enemies? We remember we used to be like them. How did God treat us when we were his enemies? Answer, he what? He loved us. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, by the ra- saved from the wrath of God through him. God loved us while we were yet sinners. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, right? The world of the rebellious, the world of the sinner, the world that we are a part of, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Again, we are just like other people around us are now presently, right? We were as other people are now, not knowing God, uh, hating Christ, uh, hating uh, those who follow him, uh, carnal in mind, walking under the power of the control of the devil, excluded from the life of God, a hardened, hardened heart. And we were God's enemies. Again, when we were God's enemies, how did God treat us? Did he curse us or did he bless us? The answer is he what? He blessed us. Therefore, 
the responsibility the Christian has most and utmost, supremely, is to be like his God. The, the Christian is to be like his God. And our God is a God of love, a God of mercy, of great grace, uh, a God who's long-sufferingly compassionate. Therefore, so too must be those who follow him. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So again, specifically, what do we do when persecution comes? Again, we remember. We stop and remember how God has treated us. Again, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we remember when persecution comes, we remember God's grace in our own life. Right? We remember how God treated us. We remember God's grace in our own lives. Ephesians 2.80, And for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Again, there's no one in the body of Christ boasting about anything. Again, there's nothing absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing special about any of us. Uh, the only reason that we understand anything in the body of Christ, the only, uh, only reason we understand anything out of the Word of God is just because God in His kindness has opened our minds to receive the truth. There's nothing whatsoever special about us. There's no reason, listen to me, there is no reason for God to save us in and of ourselves. There's no reason. Except God's great mercy, God's great grace, God's amazing love. Therefore, we can look upon those who persecute us in compassion. We, we can look upon our persecutors in compassion, realizing that they are now like we once were, lost, separated from God, separated from Christ, without hope. So when persecution comes, and I'll just give you a little, I, mean, I don't know the future, but I, I would tend to think it's going to ramp up a bit. When persecution comes, we don't need to stop and ask, why is this happening to me? We already know the answer to that question. It's because of our identification with Christ. It's because the world doesn't know God. The world doesn't love God. The world did the same thing to Christ. It's going to do the same thing to those who are identified with him, who love him and love God. We know why the question when persecution comes is now what? What will we do? Again, number one, we're going to remember. We're going to remember how God treated us in love. Number two, we're going to remember God's grace, God's wonderful grace in our own life. And number three, we're going to realize the reason we're being persecuted is because our persecutor does not know God nor Christ. The reason that person, he or she, is persecuting us is they don't know the Savior. They're unregenerate. They're, they're slaves of Satan. They have been deceived you're in the process of still being deceived. They're blinded. Second Corinthians 4.3. 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.3. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they not, might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unregenerate people, our persecutors, can't see the truth. They're blinded in the process of perishing unbelieving, they're, they're deceived, they're duped by the devil. They can't see the glory of Christ. So what do we do when it comes? What do we do when persecution comes? Again, we remember. We remember they are now like we once were. This is who we were, apart from God's love, apart from God's mercy, apart from God's great grace. So therefore, we're not going to retaliate. We're not going to curse, but we're going to bless. We're going to bless them, and then we're going to take the action to pray for them, to pray for their salvation. Because they are exactly like we once were, lost in sin, separated from God, in need of the Savior. Therefore, the true Christian will bless those who persecute you, bless and not curse. We pray that God will open the blind eyes of our persecutor to the truth of the glories of Christ, that they might know him as we do that they might be forgiven of their sin, know the love of God that changes and transforms lives. So again, we who know Christ, we who know God, we are to be like him, merciful, gracious, forgiving, loving. 
And when our blessed Lord, who knew no sin, was reviled, he offered nothing in return. When he was cursed, he was silent. When they murdered him upon the tree, he cried out that the Lord God would forgive their sin because they did not know what they were doing. Again, Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. So if you're not actively seeking the good of those who are persecuting in your life presently, if you're not sorry for them, not actively seeking uh, uh, that they would come to a knowledge of the truth, praying for them and sharing gospel with them if you have opportunity, if you're not actively doing that, then you have to wonder if you even know the Savior yourself. I think it's a legitimate question. Because a Christian is like his God. And God just doesn't believe a bunch of information. God actually gets involved, interfered in our life, and actually interferes in the life of everybody in the world, right? God so loved the world he gave. It's active. Christian is like his God. Christ prayed for us when we persecuted him, when it was our sins that nailed him to Calvary's cross. Therefore, in view of God's great mercies in our own lives, How could we do anything less for those who persecute us? Because the reality is God and Christ, they're the standard. And again, Christ says in Matthew, we're to be perfect like the Heavenly Father is perfect. Paul says we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Falsely accused, falsely arrested, brutalized, beaten, led to his his death, being nailed to a cross, dying on a tree, bearing our sins. Christ said these words, Luke 23, verse 34. Father, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's very interesting. The man who's speaking to us, Paul, in this 12th chapter of the book of Romans, who's telling us, bless those who persecute you and bless and curse not. He heard those very same words in his own life first when he took part in the murder of Saul or the murder of uh, Stephen. Paul heard those very words in his own life first when he took part in the murder of Stephen. At the time, before his conversion, Paul, as you know, was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a man, too, who was at one time blind to the truth. He was alienated from God, hostile in mind indeed, hater of God, hater of Christ, and a violent persecutor of Christians. But while Saul of Tarsus is standing there participating in the murder of Stephen, who was an innocent man, he first heard these words from the mouth of the one whom he took part in killing Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Father, bless them, forgive them. Don't lay this sin against their account, because they're blind, they're captives of Satan. They don't know the evil that they're doing. It comes out of Acts chapter 7. So by Paul's own words, his heart was pricked by the truth. And one day he hears with his own ears these words from Christ, Acts chapter 9, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul's persecution of Stephen and and the other members of the church was nothing more than really the persecution of the person of Jesus Christ himself. And when God in his mercy opened Paul's blind eyes to that truth, Saul died. Saul died. Paul rose. A new creation, a new creature in Christ, transformed never again being the same man that he once was because now he knows personally in his own life what it means to bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. And I do pray that every one of us here knows something of the mercy of God in our own lives. And if you claim that, if you claim to know the Savior, then we have to demonstrate that fact in our lives to those around us who are persecuting us. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this kind of quick look here in this one little verse here out of Romans uh, chapter 12. And again, we stand amazed at your kindness and mercy to us that has transformed and changed our lives. You've changed us radically from the inside out and help us to demonstrate that reality by how we live our lives in view of your great mercies to us. Our transformation is real. It's not just about what we believe. That is part of it, of course. 
But to really believe something means it makes an impact in our lives and our hearts and transforms the way we live and act and interact with those around us. So help us to be like Christ. Help us to be like the one we are are united with, uh, the Savior, the one who has prayed for our salvation and asked you, the Father, to forgive us because we didn't know what we were doing. But you and your kindness pursued us when we were rebels and aliens, and your grace and love has opened our hearts to receive the truth And that truth has transformed and changed our lives. So help us demonstrate that in the way we live in a manner that's pleasing to you, that draws attention not to us, but draws attention to Christ who makes us different because we are different, makes us look different in the world that doesn't know this kind of love. But this is the kind of love that you have given to us, uh, the kind of love that we are to demonstrate to the world around us, believers and unbelievers. Help us to represent you well in this world because we do represent you. We are uh, the light of the world. Thank you for this day of worship, the morning and the evening, and then for our time of fellowship coming up here after uh, we sing. We just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.